Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined by my good friend, Eric. We are again talking about Hitchcock. This, I believe, is our fifth Hitchcock recording. Today's movie is, I confess, Hitchcock's Catholic movie set in Quebec so that the Catholic story works better. It stars Monty Clift and Anne Baxter and Carl Malden and Brian Ahern. It's both a psychological study and a courtroom drama with a bit of police procedural thrown in. And because of its Quebec setting, it has an extraordinarily European air. It's full of medieval and early modern architecture full of the imposing wood-paneled interiors of, say, Victorian times. And this makes it unusual. It was not a success in America, but it is unusually imposing, and in ways we'll try to explain, it is the most serious Hitchcock picture we've talked about. So much for my introduction. Hello, Eric. Thanks for joining me again. How are you? Thank you, Titus, for uh, bringing me on board again for another great Hitchcock film. Yes, I confess. Uh, I confess I hadn't seen I confess. It was a treat to be able to pick up a new film. As I said before, I'm not an expert in Hitchcock's films. I knew all the big hits. I'd seen them throughout my life and enjoyed them, watching them over and over. And uh, this is a very imposing film with a very European feel. In fact, the French New Wave directors and artists, this was their favorite of Hitchcock's films. And you can see why with its very European flavor. Yes, and it has this way of shooting characters that emphasizes that they're in certain ways vulnerable, each one of them in his individuality, and you get to outline in their gestures their personalities, hence the admiration, and the French director Eric Romer especially loved this, and that's always a good sign, he was a great director. Yeah, the camera angles and the choice of shots set up not only the individuals, but even the um, very symbolic use of architecture around Quebec, especially church architecture in the old city. It really gives you a sense that there are things both out of kilter in this film and in this society, but also that individuals really do matter in this picture in, in a very deep way. And a great cast doing an excellent job Montgomery Cliff famously had some real problems with Hitchcock on this picture. His method acting and Hitchcock's cattle-like treatment of actors, a rather famous topic of conflict on the set. And Montgomery Cliff was also dealing with some alcoholism at this point in his life. But he does a, a really astounding and thoughtful performance as this priest, Father Logan, who finds himself in a conundrum, a conundrum that Hitchcock said that atheists and Protestants just wouldn't understand, and that's the seal of confession. Yes, I agree about Monty Clift. For once, you see why there's room for his kind of actor. He's sensitive, he's vulnerable, he has an interior trouble that he's able very well to evoke. And in this case, you see the dignity of that. He plays a character that is wrestling with life and death and with the sanctity of his vows. And for once, the man and the idea match. Mm -hmm. The idea at the center, as you pointed out, is the seal of confession. That's not just uniquely Catholic, but it is strangely pre-modern. It is the opposite of enlightenment. It is keeping something a secret. It's our way of dealing with shame and the fact that we want to retain, despite our sense of shame and because of our sense of shame, our individuality. We are willing to obey certain authorities even about our souls as we do with legal political authorities about our bodies mainly, but we want to retain our individuality and that is somehow protected by confession. 
this of course is somewhat difficult to explain and we'll try to show how this brings out both the crucial problem in liberalism and in Christianity to maybe give our audience a better grasp of the solemnity and the interest Hitchcock brought to this story. This is based on a play from the turn of the century by a French writer who was not important. Hitchcock saw it sometime in the 30s and liked it and prepared for a long time to shoot this movie and had lots of people working on it. It was obviously of interest to him and he finally got it right. The writer George Tabori, the joke is he wanted to turn this movie about uh, a persecuted man into, of course, an allegory about McCarthy and McCarthyites Mm -hmm. and witch hunts, which Hitchcock refused because that's a silly thing to do. We'll try to show that the reflection on politics and human nature here is much deeper and it has nothing to do with some kind of timely polemic or trying to be clever. The pleasure I've had in this series is researching and reading about Hitchcock and his films and as well as watching them. And the thing you see over and over again is that his screenwriters have this disconnect. They're always trying to do something very topical and clever. And I think they thought that by working with a man who was sort of famous for being, in a sense, cinematically clever, they could do that. And he's really plumbing depths that they don't even begin to see. And one of the things, as we get into the plot of this story, is that there's a significant change from the original French play. And there seems to be some disagreement whether that's really Hitchcock's intention or whether in part it was studio pressure. He had had a bumpy run of it in the late 40s and was about to come into his real stride, you know, with Strangers on a Train and and the films in 1954 and going forward. But in the original French play, the priest is going to end up being a sacrificial victim. And here he has a better chance from a worldly point of view. So the story begins in Quebec a few years after the end of World War II, and we meet a priest, Father Michael Logan. And of course, the film, like several of Hitchcock's films, opens with a great window shot. Camera lifts us up in. Actually, even before that, we get these signs directing us, right? Pointing us. This is in some ways a very um, didactic film by Hitchcock. And we go into a window and we see a, a bead screen waving back and forth. Someone has just passed through and on the floor is a body. And of course, the body is the victim, a very unpleasant lawyer. And the next thing we're treated to is a man in a priest cassock in the dark of night scuttering down a street. Obviously, this is the killer. The killer repairs to a Catholic church where Father Logan sees him out the window, goes in to see who's come into his church so late. It's nearly midnight. And there he discovers, using a votive candle, a man by the name of Otto Keller, the servant. He's a refugee from Germany, and he is a servant of the rectory and also a servant of the attorney. Keller says, I want to make a confession. And it turns out in the course of the confession that he does confess the murder. We leave the scene at that point. We don't actually hear his confession. The next thing we see is a second confession, as it were, as Keller informs his wife, Alma, named for Hitchcock's own wife, that he has committed a murder. He had just gone to rob the lawyer, but the lawyer resisted and he struck him and killed him. We further learn that the priest has told him that if he wants to be forgiven by God, what he has to do is return the money that he stole and then turn himself in. And this auto killer is unable to do. And of course, Keller being the German word for cellar or basement, so he's really at the bottom of humanity, as it were. This sets in motion the great conflict. Father Logan, Montgomery Cliff, knows who the killer is. He, he knows the guilty party, but because of the sacredness of the confession, he cannot reveal that. And the police, of course, have come to the scene of the crime because Otto Keller himself reports it. He's a pretty good convincing actor, he turns out. 
And we meet the next important character played by Carl Malden is Inspector LaRue. He's going to solve this rather difficult murder case. And Montgomery Cliff shows up at the scene of the crime. He's meeting Ann Baxter there, who's the sort of quasi-romantic lead. A woman, before he became a priest, he was deeply attached to. At this point, the priest has been hanging around this crime scene and admits that he was going to meet the murdered lawyer by the name of Villette. At this point, the suspicions of the inspector, Carl Malden's character, are aroused, and he begins to relentlessly pursue Montgomery Clift, constantly trying to determine what happened. Well, it turns out that when the murder was taking place, Ann Baxter reached out to him because she was being blackmailed by this lawyer who knew that in the past she had had at least an evening spent with the priest before he was a priest, and he's been using this. She's now a married woman married to a successful politician. In this conundrum, Ann Baxter realizes she has to come clean. She wants to save this man because she's still desperately in love at this point with Father Logan. She thinks that if she tells the police, he was with me because she calls on him for advice on what to do about this lawyer. And his advice was that we'll both confront him the next day. Well, of course, that's when the murder is discovered. And in an attempt to come clean and provide an alibi for Montgomery Cliff, she provides the missing motive that the police did not have for why anyone would kill this attorney, a man who they say is unknown. He has clients, but nobody knows him. Also, the forensic science comes back and says there's still enough time after their evening car ride and discussion about what to do for Montgomery Clift to go to the lawyer's home and whack him on the head. At this point, the police are going to close in and arrest Clift. He'll tell them everything except the crucial piece of evidence. He refuses to reveal the confession. Otto Keller spins a realistic set of lies to say that he was actually the recipient of a de facto confession because he was upset and wouldn't talk to him that something very bad had happened. And so leaving all the suspicion pointing And he plants the evidence, the bloody yes. cassock awesome. mm-hmm. in the trunk of Father Logan. Right, and this is the smoking gun, as it were. Father Logan is arrested and tried. Uh, there's a crown prosecutor played greatly by Brian Heron. He, uh, at first, doesn't believe it can be the priest, but once the evidence seems to point that way, he's got to have his man too and pursues Montgomery Clift voraciously in the witness stand. And we think at this point he's probably going to be condemned. Everybody believes that the priest is guilty of this murder. But the jury comes back and says there's insufficient evidence, so we're not going to condemn him. The judge even makes a statement at that point. Well, they may have let you off, but I personally think you're guilty. And Montgomery Clift goes out of the courtroom and there's an angry mob waiting to assault him because nobody believes he's innocent. And at this point, Alma Keller, the refugee's wife, comes forward to confess. Her husband shoots and kills her. She does confess and receives absolution from the priest. Keller makes a run for it. There's a great chase scene through the hotel there. and Keller takes down another person. The police corner him in a ballroom. Montgomery Cliff comes forward to speak to him to stop the killing and hopefully give some opportunity for Keller to make good. Keller accuses him of breaking the seal of the confessional at that point, which he hasn't. And there is a final shootout. Keller is wounded and is dying. And yet again, Montgomery Cliff goes and performs his priestly functions for him just as he dies. And the film ends. Yes, it's a very affecting conclusion. You move from the shock and disappointment that the priest cannot be cleared in court to Mm -hmm. the strange relief and yet lack of relief when the jury nevertheless finds guilty for absence of evidence. And then to this terrible set of murders and the shocks that involve now both the public in the streets and police. 
It's a remarkable conclusion and fits well with the theme. There are confessions at the end that mirror and answer somehow to the confession in the beginning. First of all, this shows something that I've been thinking about for a while. How could you tell Christian stories when you know that God will save everyone in the end, so to speak? God ultimately triumphs, does he not? Well, this is a great example of how that is done. Partly it means that the faith requires exploration because it's not without difficulties. And partly it requires seeing the human burden that the faith requires and why. And so this ends up being a story about where a priest and where confession stand to society. It's a series of accidents, it would seem, and secrets that lead the police and then the prosecutor to arrest and accuse this priest. And it's important to go through them to see what they reveal. But first of all, we have to look at this in its Christian terms. This is a passion play, the way Hitchcock tells it. Monty Clift plays a sacrificial Christ figure. This woman who loves him and has to learn about the sacrificial character of love plays a kind of Mary Magdalene. The prosecutor is a Pontius Pilate who acts out the opinion, well, what is truth after all? And of course, there is a Judas betrayer, and it seems we should know better by now. 2,000 years later or nearly, we already know about the passion of the Christ. All these Christian respectable people in the story should know better. But the story suggests that for all that we should have learned by now, when we are actually faced with the question, we might choose respectability over innocence and send a man to his death. So it's very important to see why and what the details are. Now, Eric, you mentioned that there are two things that seem to damn this priest. On the one hand, it's the seal of confession. He knows the truth about the murder and he can't tell it. Now, on the one hand, this shows an essential conflict between politics and Christianity. The church gives its priests this power and this burden to not do justice or not help justice be done and the laws applied because of the seal of confession. The church asserts this superior dignity to the laws that it shall hear truths that the laws cannot hear and therefore cannot tell the public. Especially in our times, of course, this is almost unexplainable and almost intolerable. Our legal and political democracy and our rights all demand openness, accountability, transparency in the acts of government and in the transactions of justice. Whereas this is all about secrecy and privacy. So the question of confession is itself important and maybe a film about this cannot succeed because the audience doesn't want to like it because of what confession itself is, except of course maybe if the audience happens to be Catholic. In that case, for the same reason, they might like the story. What's at stake here is the reasoning behind confession. Human beings, in the famous phrase of Solzhenitsyn, no Catholic he, men should not live by lies. And even if in a limited sense to a priest and therefore to the authority of the church, Men must unburden themselves of their secret sins, of their secret crimes even, because otherwise their souls would be poisoned and their lives doomed. People must know that there is someone else at least who knows them as they truly are. That's, as I said, very hard to tolerate nowadays. Now people might tell their secrets to a psychologist or indeed to perfect strangers or confess them 
live on social media or on TV. <laughs> but the seal of secrecy is unacceptable because of the implied authority of the church. Perhaps, on the other hand, the movie didn't succeed because this was not sufficiently well established. It is a very imposing movie, as you pointed out, even the angles at which buildings are shot and the sets tell you that this is very, very serious stuff, that this is as serious as it gets. There is nothing light-hearted in the story. Typically in a Hitchcock film, there's a dark vein of humor that runs often throughout the whole film. We do have one, Father Benoit, I think, who keeps us dropping his bicycle and falls. It's the closest we ever get to comic relief, and it's pretty mild stuff. I mean, even that serves in the plot in a way, because the father wants the refugee killer, who is the murderer, mm -hmm. to fix his bike. And right. that's, that's that man's status. He has to do these kinds of menial works. Yes, there's an absence of humor. Hitchcock even sometimes called his horror movies comedies. Yes. Partly because of how well they are plotted, how tightly and attentively the details are arranged. Yeah, it's almost like one of Pinero's well-made plays. I mean, that's kind of his approach to filmmaking. But in this case, yeah. he goes for the portentous, for the mm -hmm. ominous. And yet, as you said, he does not explain the importance of confession. Instead, it comes out in the plot. The whole story explains why this is important and what it means. The brilliant thing about the story is this arrangement of two accidents at the beginning that lead to a catastrophe. Now, one of them we have said is the seal of secrecy, and this seems to be an impediment to justice. The laws cannot follow their course to satisfaction to a public display of justice because the men who know the truth are one a criminal and the other one a priest, and apparently both of them are obstructing justice, and from that point of view they are the same. But there is another accident. There is a woman's guilty secret, or at least shameful secret. Now, this puts the woman and the man and the murder victim together in a strange way. He had been threatening the wife of a politician with blackmail to get money out of her, and she didn't know what to do about it, precisely because she wanted her respectability and that of her husband, the politician, to be protected. The fact that in truth she had not committed any sin, much less any crime, wasn't going to matter precisely because of the way we arrange our society. We want respectability and reputations in order to carry on, especially public duties. There is a presumption that the character of public personages should be unimpeachable or passably, tolerably unimpeachable. <laughs> <laughs> of course, given the news these days and scandal after scandal after scandal, we see that those characters are not unimpeachable. But precisely these scandals should teach us why this part of the plot is so important. We yes. would rather not have these scandals. We would rather our public affairs not be conducted in this scandalous way. And so you have, on the one hand, a legal matter of obstructing justice, and the other hand, a private matter, a shameful secret, which also turns out to be a political matter, because it mm -hmm. involves the reputation of a politician. And at the deepest level where these two things meet, the private and the public, the wife and the husband, uh, represent the liberal regime. All the liberal regimes depend on separating private life from public life privileging private life over public life so that most of us don't have to live political lives and don't have to bother continuously with public affairs. But this comes at a certain price. We have to establish privacy and that puts limits to justice, that puts limits to any sense of fairness because we just don't know enough and just don't have the power as a public and as a community to take over people's private lives and make every wrong right. 
Now, there's another corollary to that, too, is that since Hobbes and Locke, there's also the belief that the religious has to be separated out of it as well. And even in the Lockean accommodation for religion, which is supposed to be toleration, what it really is is a circumspection of the power of religion. It's circumscribed. We need to reduce the power of religion and separate it out so that it becomes a separate element of life, which we, we see to this day with the increased desire to push it out of the public square because it make it wholly a private matter. No pun intended, perhaps, but wholly a private matter is, is in fact a problem because it can't be, because it is in fact holy, right? And what this film shows brilliantly is that the religious life, the life of faith if taken seriously, will trump both private life in some very real aspects, but also political life, which is intolerable. Which gets back to, as you mentioned earlier, one of the inherent tensions and problems in Christianity, whether it's the city of God or Luther trying to separate the power of the magistrate from the power of the church, there's an ongoing tension there that this film gets right to the heart of that matter. Yes, so we get to see these competing claims to the loyalty of man and these competing statements about what constitutes human dignity, what makes us human beings. The political situation does ultimately depend on delivering justice, and that mostly consists in punishment of the wicked. Public authorities cannot prevent crime, and we each insist that we are dignified as human beings, each one of us, and therefore we cannot tolerate that some crimes will go unpunished, that some people's lives will be ruined, so that the majority can go on in tranquility. Here we see how liberalism and Christianity do have a great thing in common. They insist on individuality. Each life's person matters. That's exactly right. And with Christianity, we have the elevation of the individual. You think of someone like Peter in the Gospels or Mary Magdalene in the relationship to the Ann Baxter character. A common person who is a fallen and flawed person becomes a hero of a story. This is not what you're going to find in ancient literature until you get to the Gospels. But that sets up a huge problem, though, because we still have a desire for justice. And, you know, there's been a murder. And Carl Malden plays brilliantly here, the inspector who represents that quest for justice. You mentioned Flannery O'Connor in earlier conversations. There's a very real sense in which Catholic authors of the 20th century get this question better than anyone else. And I brought up to you Graham Greene and Brighton Rock, where we have a very similar character whose pursuit of justice, in both cases, exhibits a deep flaw about justice. When a human being embodies the sense of justice and pursues other people, there's an almost a maniacalness to it. And Carl Malden's character, when he really begins to think he can spring his trap and catch Montgomery Clift, who he's convinced is the murderer, he calls him into his office and they have a conversation over a meal. Well, this is about the secrets and the shame that constitute private life mm -hmm. and privacy and where that stands to a legal political authority that's all about being public, being open, being available to all inquiry. This brings us to this really strange thing that the inspector, on behalf of the public, wants to pry into the private lives of anybody who seems connected to the murder. Mm -hmm. They will mm -hmm. all be questioned. All of a sudden, people who had lived banal, respectable lives become possible murderers. They become suspects. Their behavior becomes suspect because of liberalism. Mm -hmm. Because in a liberal regime, we have privacy. Now, in the normal run of things, that's a great thing. But when once legal authorities start asking questions, you have to account for your movements, for your presence, for your body, for your deeds and for your intentions and thoughts in a way you're never prepared for. Nobody goes about his life constructing alibis because we all think we're innocent. And liberal respectability is the public image of that sense of our own innocence. 
And in a sense, I mean, in a film that's about confession, and you see this in the original trailer, right? I always think that in some ways the obvious key to a Hitchcock picture is looking at the trailer. Each of the characters in the trailers, they all have something to confess. And Carl Malden's character is, in fact, a sort of inquisitor general. He demands confessions from these people because he wants the truth, because he wants justice. And in this conversation with Montgomery Clift, he says, he tries to give him his Catholic bona fides, and I guess to sort of set him at ease, perhaps. He says, well, I was a choir boy at that church or that cathedral. And of course, all that does is raise, as you pointed out earlier, his own blindness to the reality of the Christian narrative itself that should say that there is going to be times when innocence is going to find itself in a place it cannot defend, which is the case with Montgomery Clift's character. He cannot defend himself in the face of these accusations because of, of his duty and his faith. And so everybody else's inner lives have to be gutted out and spilled all over the table. And this shows, you know, what the importance of murder is. As you pointed out so well at the beginning, the opening series of shots is not just ominous European-looking buildings, massive, imposing in Quebec, but this sign, direction, always pointing to, it turns out a corpse. When once this happens, everybody becomes suspect. People who just meet there, who had some business with a living person, feel that the evil blackmailing lawyer, that is the priest played by Monty Clift and the wife of the politician played by Anne Baxter, they just happen to meet there and now they're suspect. And that shows you how we react to murder. For us to live our quiet, private lives, we assume that our innocence is our protection. Nothing bad can happen to us. When once bad things start happening, however, the world goes crazy. And that is because we want to know at some deep level, and this is why we are pointed to a corpse in the beginning. How could evil come in our midst? We all live private lives on the presumption of mutual respectability. You go down the street with umpteen numbers of strangers every day, and you never suspect any of them. If you mm -hmm. think you'd go crazy, and then something evil happens, and you wonder where was the evil? Privacy, liberalism, concealed that evil. We conceal it from ourselves by our sense of shame. But now we must know, and the inspector is there to enact our hysterical desire to find evil, to pin it on somebody, hopefully the guilty party, so that the rest of us can go back to thinking ourselves innocent. In the opening scene where we're going to see Father Logan Montgomery lift in his church for the first time as he emerges from the sacristy across the altar, we hear in the orchestral underscore the notes of the Dies Irae, right? The Gregorian chant. And if you're not familiar with classical or liturgical music, you may know it from The Shining, the horror film by Kubrick, right? Based on the Stephen King novel. Of course, the text of that, the Latin text, it's from the Requiem Mass as, you know, Day of Judgment, Day of Wrath. And this confession is setting up a day of judgment, driving this passion play forward to its conclusion. And with this sense that innocence is there, and we do also have two small children who are the witnesses to the escaping priest. So we have two children who've been babysitting. It kind of boggled my mind that they were out babysitting at 1130 on a school night in Quebec in the 1950s. But hey, whatever. Well, These two little kids did walk the streets alone. They the could. That's absolutely true. And but you're um, absolutely right to point this out how important it is that children who are blameless are the witnesses. Somebody exactly. looking like a priest, somebody in a cassock was mm. running from the scene of the crime. But then again, the priest is supposed to be innocent and above suspicion as well. Mm -hmm. And it is the innocent children who incriminate the innocent priest, 
Now, what's so interesting about how that's set up, aside from these two images of innocence, is how they relate to one another. Now, the mm-hmm. children, we have no reason to disbelieve. They're speaking honestly the evidence of their eyes, right. and they're available for scrutiny. Now, their testimony isn't. They saw somebody in a cassock. And That's we are it. shown from the beginning, yep. somebody in a cassock wasn't a priest. The cassock was merely an image. Somebody looking like a priest. The children really are children and innocent. The guy who looks like a priest isn't really a priest. But you can't tell when you just look. And that That's shows right. you again what is concealed or what clothes conceal or a uniform, what it conceals. goes back to our constitutive sense of shame. That's why we wear clothes. But it also allows us to deceive ourselves and other people. These children are deceived and do not know it, and adults do not suspect it either. However suspicious these suspicious people are, they do not suspect that, that the look of the murderer could be false. And that shows you again the power of murder on our imaginations. Everybody is driven to do an evil thing in destroying this innocent priest, because they insist on that look of the murderer, so that the evil can be sought out and extirpated. They think that that is the content of innocence. It came out of the mouths of babes, didn't it? It's not exactly. what the good book teaches. And they don't think further than that. And that shows, as you say, that the inspector, with all his own childish purity, he was a choir boy once, has evil in him that's tied up with his quest for justice. He is suspicious and wants to punish. This is brought out in such a stark way precisely because this is a play about a priest who is supposed to be the opposite of being punitive and trying to destroy people, who is supposed to be willing to hear everything from a human being in the name of God. And again, you see the great burden the faith puts on people and how different it is from the image of a priest as in the eye of a child or in the eye of the law, which is all about respectability. Another visual musical tie-in that I think hits on this theme is that the priest garments are vestments. They are vested with power and authority. We invest in them trust. And we go back in the film, we get to see a flashback to the ordination of Father Logan Montgomery Clift. And of course, there we get the other appropriate chant, uh, the Vieni Creator Spiritus, the descent of the Holy Spirit that invests spiritually the priest with his authority the church acting as the conduit for God's blessing and setting this man up in the authority that gives him the ability to see the seal of confession. And Baxter's character is there incognito, as it were, to see this. And when the priest knows he's going to be arrested, he knows that all the pieces are against him, he goes on this sort of march to Golgotha, this sort of passion, the stations of the cross, and he goes back to that cathedral to sit and pray in that church. And in that process, we see him walking. There's a great, great shot of Christ carrying his cross, and the camera's placed behind it, so it's in the shadow in the foreground. And in the background on the street below, we see Montgomery Cliff walking his own Via Dolorosa. He finally, of course, turns himself in. He gives to these people what they want, because he is invested with the Holy Spirit. There's no question of his sanctity. And the other character, as we were discussing earlier, too, where we see this issue, this conflict is in Willie Robertson, the crown prosecutor, who has to embody this respectability. But we get to find out that he's not altogether that very respectable of a person. And he initially thinks Malden's character is off his base about the priest. He says, well, you know, he is a priest. You just can't go around accusing him. But when the time comes, he's got to also fulfill his public role. And this conflict continues to build and, and reflect and refract in different ways throughout the film. Yes, you're right. The characterization of the priest, as you pointed out about bearing the cross, 
It is earnest in your face. Those are images you're supposed to take seriously. They're supposed to hit you hard and to stick with you. This is Hitchcock at his least ironic and at his most moralistic. Those images are supposed to force a certain question upon us. How is it possible, knowing everything we do about Christ, to still be doing this? Yeah. To still require a holy victim, so to speak, to scapegoat somebody, to put this man, because he's silent, to put in his silence what we need to believe so that he's guilty and we can get rid of him, and therefore of our own fear of the evil in our midst. And he accepts this. As you put it, he returns to where he was ordained, and we'll, we'll get to this next, to his sense of mission and where it comes from, and the true politics of the movie... But he is, as you say, contrasted with this other character, the Crown Prosecutor, who is a man like any of us. He has a public life and the duties and the responsibility and even putting on the majesty of the law, just like the majesty of God is put on by a priest in his vestments. But on the other hand, he has a private life. As you pointed out to me, I had missed this in the movie, he does tricks at parties, parlor tricks. He socializes, that is to say, privately he knows the politician and his wife who was being blackmailed in relation to the priest. They're acquaintances of his and he doesn't believe that they should be publicly humiliated or harassed or involved in any of this. He can't believe in any of the preliminary evidence because he knows these people privately. He does not fill in with suspicion what privacy conceals from the public eye because he has private eyes as well. But everybody who is then forced to think that way about the priest, okay, we've seen his public look, but his public look might be that of the murderer that the children told us about. What is his private life like? What is he in secret? Here it is the murderer who supplies in false information and people are fairly eager to believe it. Yes. And that shows how justice can mutilate a human person for the sake of punishment, for the sake of tit-for-tat saying he deserves what he's getting. We suspect him because he's suspicious and he deserves to get what we suspect he did and what that earns. So this crown prosecutor is a kind of Pontius Pilate figure. The inspector, however narrow-minded, is honest in his ferocity. His evil suspicions and his desire to see that this priest is destroyed, that's all on his sleeve. The Crown Prosecutor is initially friendly, deferential, and has this private interest. He is a political animal. He knows the politician, and he knows that in public you don't talk this way about priests. He's thoughtful, deliberative, restrained. And then all this gives way to a ferocity that in court outdoes that of the inspector himself. And that is because things changed, it looks like you now have to accuse this man, and it doesn't matter what you know or what you think, because what is truth, as Pilate famously asked of Christ? And so he's willing to manufacture suspicions, he can't get evidence, of an affair, so that he can stick it to the priest. He knows that there's just not enough evidence, because the priest is a public figure, people don't have a private figure to correspond to it, for which to damn the priest. And so he supplies that by insinuations and allegations that do not come with evidence of an affair. They want to say that his love is not in fact pure. He's not a sacrificial character. His love is impure. He broke his vows and therefore deserves whatever you say against him and do to him. He broke his vows and committed adultery too. They want this man to be a sinner and a criminal so that he can be a victim to boot. There you see how politics is indicted from a Christian perspective as perpetrating violence on innocence in the name of respectability. 
Respectability turns out to be a poor substitute for innocence, and it is such a poor substitute because it ultimately encourages people to commit murder. At some point, telling the difference between the Crown Prosecutor and the murderer and what he wants becomes impossible. And that is the nadir of humanity. As much as there is exaltation in the sacrifice and the sacrificial love of the priest, you find its correlative this lowest of all points when the law and evil private design turn out to do the same thing and to work together. This goes on to the end with the murderer who, confronted with the fact that his own wife cannot bear the guilt, does not want to live by lies and wants to tell the truth, he kills her and then he accuses the priest of having broken his vows. This murderer wants to believe that the priest would never risk his own life, that the priest would never jeopardize his own private life out of his public convictions. Those things must be only skin deep or only as profound as the clothing on the surface of our bodies because otherwise the murderer would have to confront his own evil. This brings us to the politics of the movie. This is a post-war movie. By the way, you can place it fairly exactly. There's a detail in the movie where you see a movie poster. It's Oh, that's forcer. right. Yes, that's right. That's yes. a Bogart picture, fairly well regarded. By the way, Zero Mostel, the comic actor, is also in it. But this is a is thriller. It? Yeah, this oh. is a thriller about Murder Incorporated. That is oh, to say, really? an outfit, a criminal organization that sells assassinations by contract. And Bogart is the DA who brings it all down. In that movie, justice is done politically by a manly man. In this case, political justice and the law seem paltry confronted with the burdens and demands of the faith. And that places the movie in 51. But the interior logic of the movie tells you that Montgomery Clift was just another kid in love who out of a sense of duty went to fight World War II and at some point stopped writing to the woman he loved. And at some point after the war, he became a priest. And that all suggests that the experience of the war, you know, the catastrophe of World War II, going to Europe to see that hell, that's what convinced him that the proper response for a human being is to turn to God and to serve man and to serve God together to defend human dignity. And it is part of the church's effort to relocate refugees that is German refugees brought over into the new world and it seems that he's bringing the sins of the old world with him killer turns thief and murderer for his own advantage and the deeper he descends into guilt and madness the less he is even willing to countenance that somebody might not be evil and mad like he is and that seems to be also an effect of the war mm -hmm. both of these men the murderer and the man he sets up as a victim the priest react in different ways to what happened in world war ii and show different human reactions as to what it would take to re-establish trust in community and human dignity, and on the other hand, what it would mean to fully dedicate oneself to one's own good at whatever expense to anybody else. Of course, seeing the catastrophe of the war would be enough to shake anyone's belief in justice and his fellow man, and therefore excuse or even precipitate any horror committed as a reaction to that. The deepest conflict in the movie is between these two men who both have seen the collapse of all politics and all justice in a war of a catastrophic character. And you do see this continual interplay, too, between this sense of self-preservation at all costs. I mean, it's the engine that's driving this plot throughout. Is What is your reaction going to be to this sort of catastrophe? 
we talked about rope in an earlier podcast, and you can go back to Hitchcock's Lifeboat as well in 1944, and there's a sense that self-preservation in the face of catastrophe can, in a liberal regime, it can become sometimes, I think, misplaced as one of the higher virtues because of the emphasis on the individual. In the wrong context, the drive for self-preservation becomes a wholly corrupting force. And when that's coupled with this need for respectability, Keller, not only is he in the cellar, but he also undermines the respectable order. He digs it out from beneath with his own urging for self-preservation that exposes the corruption that we see in the crown prosecutor. And like you said, exactly, Carl Malden's character is driven. We have no doubt that he is honestly searching for the truth. Brian O'Haran could care less. He's just doing his job. And in his own private life, you know, his parlor tricks are sort of frat boy drinking games and perhaps a little bit more sophisticated than that. I mean, he does it in a tuxedo after all, but um, <laughs> but he's trying to balance a, you know, a shot glass on his forehead while he gets down on the floor and without spilling it. This dichotomy between the public and the private is pulled down and collapsed. And this brings out an angry mob. You know, another corresponding scene to the passion narratives is that when the jury, and and interestingly, the jury is sort of a balancing feature here because in a sense, the jury does not go along with the mob mentality or the crown prosecutor or the police because they say, look, it's insufficient. So there's some sense in which some component of community still functions. I mean, the word church. saving grace of citizen duty. Exactly. Trial by 12 of your peers, 12 good men and true, is vindicated, actually, strangely. It is. And the sort of more Roman European model of a trial by a judge or panel of judges is condemned because the judge himself would have condemned the priest if it had been up to him. Yes. So this Anglo-Saxon, you know, ancient model of the trial by jury survives this test. But in some ways, it survives because it, too, is a symbol like Montgomery Cliff's dedication to serve God and humanity. It's a means by which you serve the community. Right? We, we serve on a jury, right? And I think that there's some parallel there, which is why it's allowed to function. And we get a very brief moment of deliberation in the jury room in which it's not clear to us at that point that they're going to acquit him. In fact, it sounds like quite the opposite. So we get the sense that these men have overridden perhaps their natural inclination to condemn And you see in them that there's a combination of the solemnity of their duty. They have to decide whether a man is going to get executed. And the impulse, on the one hand, think of this other man as one of them. That's the whole logic of jury of your peers. Mm -hmm. Powerful people are not going to be able to destroy the weak with the forms of the law. Anybody in the street, any citizen could serve on a jury. And he has to think that he might find himself the defendant in another trial. So he had better act with a view to citizen duties and impartial law that is his defense and it is therefore also his duty to provide that defense to anyone among his peers and so there is this sense of what the citizen is to abstract from your own interest in the interests of your own interests these 12 good men and true do acquit themselves well of their duty it is very disappointing given the logic of aggression and escalation in the third act that you expect a catastrophe to come But the script very intelligently splits the public. We know the whole truth, but are helpless spectators. Exactly. doesn't know the truth, but it might not be helpless in doing evil. Exactly. The jury knows some, not as much as we do, and they have some power, not as much necessarily as the mob would have, but they restrain their vindictive passions. And they obey the law when, as you pointed out, not even the judge would have done it, certainly not the prosecutor, because they're so obsessed with how this looks publicly, what the respectability issue is here, as opposed to whether the man really and truly is innocent. 
Well, and I think, too, Hitchcock frequently changes his source material, sometimes quite significantly. And the two changes that he makes from the original play, we're left with a rather ambiguous situation with Ann Baxter. We don't know if they just slept together, sheltering in a summer house on this estate, or whether they actually have slept together. In the original play, the woman is pregnant with the priest's child, and the priest is condemned by a French court to death and is executed. And Hitchcock, whether the execution or not, was forced on him by the studio, or at least maybe he liked to let people think that, but he certainly changed the other. Again, maybe to make it more sellable in the 1950s, but it doesn't matter. What matters is it actually improves the overall, I think, focus and thrust of the drama. Yes. The way the script puts it, the priest's chastity is not some great virtue, exactly. It's just he's not a cad, actually. Yes. That's in fact, the... for his chastity. On the other hand, the fact that he is not hanged allows for there to be some connection between the church, the faith, the priest, the community, and the public, and the authorities. They do not come to a tragedy because there is enough of a correspondence between the organizations of a liberal democracy and the organization of the Catholic Church for coexistence. We see beyond the man the sacrifice of Christ, and you could say that this is the change between ancient and modern times. Maybe Christ could get away with it this time, is the suggestion there. Now, of course, that's not intended as a theological matter. It's supposed to suggest which way lies decency, or in what sense liberal democracy and Christianity can share their understanding of human dignity, so that they avoid committing this kind of murder. And, of course, the fact that he is not condemned also allows us to see the resolution with the final confessions. It's important to notice that the wife of the murderer had sat silent through the trial. She never gave evidence to save the priest, and it's not clear what she would have done had he been damned. One assumes she would have told the truth because she told the truth regardless, but we are not confronted with that situation. We see that she is complicit. She's a weak, servile woman, scared, put upon a stranger from the old world. And nevertheless, when she sees the extraordinary character of the priest, that he never betrays his calling and puts his faith in God and his fellow men, she runs to him to confess against the mob that he is not a murderer. That serves no practical purpose. The priest is not guilty. He's been cleared by a jury. It's going to be fine. But the public meaning is the same in this case as the private meaning for this woman. She does not want to live by lies. And she has seen in the sacrificial gesture of the priest that you don't have to live by lies. It is not asked of her to sacrifice as it is of the priest, but she becomes ready to do it. And indeed she does become sacrificial in her confession because her murderer husband murders her as well. Yes. That seems to be out of jealousy more than anything else. In a strange sense, the murderer feels betrayed that the woman chose the priest over him. And again, we see how the faith changes, not just the political association, the law and justice. It changes the family too. You know, under the American Constitution, you don't ask a woman to confess something in a court of law against her husband. Right? Matrimony prevents that. Spouses do not have to bear witness against each other in criminal cases. But she chooses to do so because of God and because of her faith. Whatever her weakness, her piety is stronger. And she ends up dying, the one innocent person to die. We've not talked much about the lawyer who gets murdered. He's a, literally a villain. He's a weak and a disgusting man who wants to blackmail people for private advantage. He concocts a crime and a sin where there isn't one just to threaten reputations and shame. 
it's not really easy to mourn his loss. <laughs> Happily, the film doesn't ask us to. But he was nevertheless a human being, and his yes. murder sets off these other catastrophes, and again shows what the importance of a human being is, both to us as Christians and to us as citizens in liberal democratic countries. Lives and deaths, therefore, have consequences on the community. The murderer, of course, himself gets murdered, but also this innocent woman, and she seems to die because of the courage of her convictions. You see again the burden that the faith puts on us. To say with Solzhenitsyn, live not by lies, might require at some point to understand that truth-telling is a sacrificial gesture. And that's a very strange reflection Hitchcock did not shy away from. Give such power to the conclusion of the movie. Both the priest and this woman risk their lives in face of a gun. You mentioned that you were less annoyed with the wife of the politician, the Magdalene figure, <laughs> the woman who loved the priest, and as you pointed out, also doomed him by her testimonies. And you have me convinced about this transformation and redemption in her character. She feels like she's tired of waiting when he goes off to fight in World War II. He stops writing to her, and she interprets that not as maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe he's busy over there in Europe or dealing with the horrors of the war, but that he's lost interest. And she's employed by the politician, and she admits that she's never loved him. And they have a rather unusual relationship. He is in love with her, and she's married him out of convenience. And when Montgomery Cliff comes home, she sees him, and they go off to talk. She does not tell him that she's married at this point. She hides this from him. They go off on a day trip on a ferry from the city to an island in the country, and they get caught in a very bad sudden summer thunder shower and are trapped there long enough trying to get out of the rain that they miss their ferry boat and they end up sleeping overnight in the summer garden house. Turns out that this crooked lawyer happens to be the owner of this property and confronts them. He says something salacious or accuses her of being disreputable in some way, and Montgomery Cliff defends her by giving him a good cock on the nose. And they go their ways. But eventually the lawyer in a social setting runs into her as the wife of this prominent local politician and begins setting up the blackmail when he realizes that she knows the priest as well. And aha, that's the same fellow. Ann Baxter feels that she's got to confess what she knows where she and the priest were and the situation in the hopes that this will clear and save him. Previously, she's overly attached to this priest. She's unable to even have any sort of normal relationship with her husband because of her emotional attachment. And he's willing to put up with this to some extent. But when she sees the sacrifice, and also when she sort of comes clean about the nature of their relationship and her own feelings, it actually allows her to begin to establish something like a more normal relationship with her husband. And so while it's not a complete redemption and, you know, this sort of emotional, spiritual affair she's been conducting with the priest, not that he has been conducting it, but she has, can come to an end. And that releases her not only from guilt, but also from not being able to live her own life at all. Unfortunately, it also gives the motive necessary to condemn Father Logan. Yeah. So we see again the dangers of telling the truth, the terrible consequences it can have. The woman, out of her love, almost dooms him, first by involving him in an unseemly meeting, by not telling him she's married, and then by telling what had happened between them, and thus supplying to inquiring minds who want to know a <laughs> motive to call the priest a murderer and an adulterer to boot. It's not just that truth-telling is shown to be dangerous, but you're right that this woman has to come to a public humiliation, live with her shame, 
so that she can realize that the love she has for this priest has become a corruption to her soul. She loves him in an erotic way that is simply impossible for a priest to reciprocate. It's again a show of how our private lives and the passions that stir and run away with us now and then can become dangerous. The priest pays the price for her. His life is at risk because she decides to tell the truth and only now, as you say, does she become capable of seeing what she has become and facing it and trying to live with it, to deal with her problems and to change. It does seem like telling the truth ultimately helps redeem her. I still don't love the character, but I understand her. (laughs) And maybe that's good enough for people. Her husband, who seems to be not just respectable, but seems to have the decency to which respectability is only an outer simile, he always stands by her. He never admonishes her or remonstrates with her, much less abandon her. And it does seem like maybe finally his patience will be rewarded, Mm -hmm. that maybe they can live as husband and wife now. So this is the one character, like the wife of the murderer, who does get some redemption. And it's probably not accidental that in such a Christian story, the women are redeemed in a way the men are not. Mm -hmm. This is part of what it means for truth to vanquish lies in the context of faith. It's impressive and it's fairly persuasive as psychology. The psychology of guilt is also very impressive. It's downright Dostoevsky and seeing how this murderer goes from guilt to guilt and from madness to madness following the logic of this inner principle that even a small thing like theft or what have you could lead to an atrocity because of the principle it implies that you will do whatever it takes for yourself. When push comes to shove, you know that you cannot respect any other human being as a human being. There's a sense of the neediness of being human here. Human beings are so vulnerable, they have to commit atrocities. That's how this relates to the fact that the murderer is a refugee trying to make a new life in a land where he's a stranger and feels defenseless. And so you see throughout the story that, on the one hand, the faith seems to bring out the worst in people, or rather to portray people in their worst light, because sins and crimes are cast into this powerful light, in contrast to the faith of the priest. This shows that, to some extent, liberalism is wise to insist on private life and privacy. We cannot publicize all these things could not live with telling too much of the truth too often, as it were. Our secrets are constitutive to us, and in that sense, the priest who accepts confession is wiser about politics than the inspector who wants to expose all secrets if he gets suspicion of them. That's one part of this, as we see with these secrets that endanger safety, even though they are not, in fact, guilty. The public is never ready for too much revelation, too much expose too much feeding of suspicion that instead of satisfying it only creates more appetite and suspicion. But then there is this other matter that you brought out so well when discussing this movie. Let's turn to this for our conclusion. said that Hitchcock movies depend for their seriousness on our taking seriously capital punishment. Yes. Well, one thing that struck me as I watched this movie the second time and also was thinking about recently having watched Rope and The Strangers on a Train as well. 
is that in England, Canada, and the United States, murder had serious consequences. Ultimately, convicted murderers are going to be condemned to death. And I was thinking also of Agatha Christie. I recently saw the remake of Murder on the Orient Express. And there's this sense of impending doom because the death penalty is a real possibility. They're not going to be on death row for 35 years going through you know, retrial after retrial after appeal after appeal. You're going to be condemned, and in a short time thereafter, you are going to be hung. So there's a sense that the sword of justice is hanging over your head. And what's happened, you know, since the UK and Canada have abolished the death penalty, and in the United States and many states, we've de facto abolished it. There's a sense that there's no retribution, right? That people who commit crimes don't have to face true justice in the way that it seems, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Our human demand and longing for justice, at least in this world, we know we're never going to have perfect justice and we're willing to accept that trade-off, but we're going to fail in even having the possibility of the trade-off because we're going to end up, these people won't really be executed. They'll spend the majority of their lives or the rest of their lives, and depending on where the jurisdiction is, living at our expense. Yes, and this does have serious consequences. I mean, just think about where our intuitions about justice and the consequences for our public life lead because of this. To look at the American example, it is the case that what is said to be justice, what is publicly declared and enforced justice, is that no man should be killed for his crimes. It is never said publicly that no man should be murdering other people. We all understand that we have laws against murder, but in fact, when people commit murder, we apparently think respectability requires that we let them get away with it and in certain ways help them. Mm-hmm. In a regime of no taxation without representation, in which the popular chamber controls the money and where questions of property are so important to public debates about justice and the common good, we do say to the family of the victim that they should pay for the murderer's way through life, through taxation, and that there shall be no justice to the family of the victim coming out of this. We wish to have exorcised tragedy, the furies, the ugly, monstrous, fatherless goddesses of dark that avenge in Greek tragedy those who don't have family left to avenge them. They have been thrown out. Mm-hmm. They've not been domesticated like in Greek tragedy, exactly. where the Furies become the kindly ones. They have been completely destroyed. For that reason, it has become much more difficult to have drama like Hitchcock's. And instead, we have the kind of popular culture we have where massive extra-legal violence, murder, destruction of endless numbers of bodies with a kind of exuberance that comes out of physical sciences seeing bodies in motions and their collisions is all over every screen and we show Mm -hmm. it to children. So I don't think we have taken the passion for vengeance or our intuitions of justice out of our nature. We have simply removed them from the public space and from politics and justice with results that aren't very encouraging. Yeah, we've sort of sublimated them and pushed them into all sorts of strange places. And our storytelling, you know, whether it's zombies, right, bodies you can't kill... We seem to be obsessed with this need to kill things in our popular entertainment. And it points to, I think, this missing piece of our sense of justice. Justice has become so blind that it's just useless in a sense. It's not that we do not take our human limits and our lives and deaths seriously. It's just that we do it in fantasies on right. screens and nowhere else. We are much likelier actually to need harsh tragedies with monstrous punishments than to see this kind of solemn movie, Hitchcock's I Confess, 
where politics, where public life and private life, where faith can be shown to a public that can understand them and think through the dilemmas we face in trying to understand our dignity and to assert our dignity. In certain ways, we have gone beyond that and we seem desperate to reassert through our public fantasies something far more brutal that would be at least one sure thing installed in chaos. Paradoxically, the Hitchcock stories where there's always somebody getting murdered, there's always some evil in a community, nevertheless leave room for justice and can give the community something that uh, the community can live with. Whereas nowadays, while we publicly assert that justice is perfect and nobody needs ever die, we don't seem to believe in our fantasies at all in the possibility of justice and community. Justice can only be an individualized vengeance that ferociously destroys any sense of common humanity between victim, aggressor, and community. Well, and also one thing that's different, you know, if you look at the sort of psychological horror of Poe and you look at, you know, Hitchcock's thrillers and then you come down to Stephen King and so forth, what we see is the role of the community becomes one of utter corruption in a way that is not true in the earlier forms of these sort of darker storytellings. There's no escape from the corruption in the community in the current mythos that we live with, which also ends up being a denial of justice. Then, if there's no escape from it, then there can be no justice. If everyone's corrupt, then there is no hope. There can't. Nobody can establish a, a regime. Yeah, and there's a lot of kind of adolescent in fantasy of escape from a community that's irredeemable. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the price we pay for pretending to have overcome evil and therefore to have endlessly delayed, if not completely abolished, the questions of retribution. I think if we've learned anything from these discussions of what the horror and the thriller actually are supposed to teach us about human nature, this new situation is not one where we have forcibly and magically rendered the world innocent. We just conceal the violence we do to innocence in the guise of respectability. And it only shows up in these dark fantasies that we cannot stop consuming, on the other hand. Yeah. The more we shout we are innocent, the more we want to see fantasies of guilt and vengeance. Well, maybe it's time to bring back John Webster, you know, I don't know. Pull out our, our Elizabethan revenge plays and the Stuart revenge <laughs> plays. <laughs> Well, Eric, thank you for joining me again. This has been a more serious and more philosophical discussion than our usual ones, and I hope to give the audience a sense of how far the intuitions and work as writer and director and producer and general movie maker of Hitchcock, how far they really go. Well, I agree. It's been a, you know, if you've not seen the film, please go see it. Pick it up on DVD, watch it online. It's a great picture. I really appreciate you including me as always, Titus. It was a lot of fun. And uh, let's do this sometime soon. We've got more movies to talk about. Well, lots more movies, thank heavens. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.